listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Handsell, a Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We've recently returned to our regular business hours at the store. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. We're asking unvaccinated customers to continue wearing masks, but if you're vaccinated, you can come in without one. We're still offering all our online shopping and curbside pickup through www.skylightbooks.com. And you can check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io backslash skylightbooks. Now onto the show. I'm joined today by Marissa Levine, whose novel, The World Gives Way, was just published by Red Hook. Marissa is a writer and artist who hails from Washington State and now lives in New York with a kindly journalist and their two cats. The World Gives Way is her first novel. How are you today, Marissa? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. This is fun. (laughs) I someday hope to make it out to your bookstore in person, but it's nice to know that you're officially open for business and and everything's uh, opening up slowly but surely. That's, That's always nice to hear. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been fun and a little shocking to see people's faces again and have no capacity limits. But you know, uh, it makes the book selling experience a lot more fun than you know being yeah. behind partitions and only having eight people in the store, that kind of thing. I work in a bookstore in the Hamptons, and the first day that we dropped mask policies was the most surreal day on the face of the planet. So I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mouths are strange to see again. Yeah, mouths are weird. <laughs> Um, But you're going to read something from your book for us? Yes. Yes, I will. Um, So this is a passage um, from early on in the book. Uh, Basically, you don't really need to know much for those that haven't read it yet, aside from the fact that my main character, Mira, has just discovered her boss, Imogene, um, hanging out on the rooftop terrace of their apartment building, uh, ready to jump. And uh, she's also informed Mira that the world that they live in, which uh, is also a generation ship, uh, is breaking down and everyone's going to die. Pleasant thoughts. (laughs) So um, I'll begin. They sat in silence for a minute or two. Mira couldn't tell how long. Eventually, if only because she had the urge to move again, Mira stood and leaned her elbows against the wall, looking out on the panoramic skyline. Imogene looked at her suspiciously, and when it became clear that Mira wasn't going to try and pull her down, she followed Mira's gaze, staring out at the buildings and the gray-blue light at the horizon. New London was a beautiful city, and this was one of the best views you could get. Beautiful and monstrous. 
Mira pictured the black silhouettes of the buildings, the towers and spires as black bejeweled teeth winking in the mouth of a monster. I think it's wrong to call it a sky if it's made with paint, metal, and lights. It's not the same thing, Imogene said out of nowhere. What does it matter if we've never known any different? This is what sky is to us, Mira contradicted. I don't go in on nostalgia for something I've never experienced. Everyone holds up the old world as this amazing thing, but you were born here, same as me. Our mothers were born here. What could we possibly know about it? This was a suspicious sort of freedom, talking with Imogene like this. Mira caught herself glancing sideways every time she spoke to check if she'd crossed a line. Imogene just shrugged. I suppose you're right, but there's nothing wrong in dreaming about the other kind of sky. I never thought about it, Mira said with all honesty. She hadn't the space or time to spend philosophizing about real versus manufactured. Too many other worries took priority. She had to get a handle on this situation. Worst case scenario, what do I do if Imogene is right? Mira balked at the idea, then rallied again. It was important to anticipate the worst, so you'd be ready for it. In Mira's experience, the worst happened more often than not. So, what's to be done if the world is ending? It might not be, she thought, to comfort herself. But just in case. If I believe you, she started. Imogene looked at her and rolled her eyes at the if. Then how long do we have before the world breaks apart? Marcus told me it would be about two months, but it depends. If the wrong gas pocket hits us, it could be tomorrow. She didn't want to believe Imogene. If the world breaks apart was almost too big to comprehend. But then the next thoughts hit. I'm never going to marry Jake. Han is never going to get that bar. And I am never going to grow old. Then she started thinking of all the ways she might get out of New London while avoiding surveillance cameras. Her expression must have darkened, or maybe Imogene was just following a similar thought pattern, because the next thing Imogene said was, there's a safe embedded in Marcus's bookshelf behind the Mark Twain's. I know. Imogene let out a surprised laugh. Yes, you would. She paused. You know how to access it? Palm scan. Mira smiled. It was a good distraction, seeing the shock on her face. Imogene smiled back, but it was a sad smile. Do what you have to do, she said. A plan was already whirring into motion. She'd knock Marcus out if he was still alive, or if it was as Imogene thought and he was already dead, she'd have to take his hand. Down at Mira's feet, Charlotte whimpered. The cold must finally be getting through her blankets. Mira bent down and picked her up, tucking her halfway inside her robe. Charlotte wriggled around a little, but eventually her face relaxed and her eyelids stopped twitching. Mira looked down and saw Imogene watching her daughter with a look of bone-deep grief. It surprised Mira. This was the most care Imogene had shown Charlotte in the total of her young life. At the very end, she proved to be a mother after all. Imogene reached out and touched Char Charlotte's cheek. Will you take care of Charlotte? It was a harsh reminder that soon Mira and Charlotte would be sitting alone on the terrace and that there would be an empty spot on top of the wall where Imogene had once stood. Mira pushed away the thought. Of course, she said, and meant it. She could feel Charlotte's breath against her skin. 
Imogene leaned closer to Charlotte, inspecting her face. Mira could see the ivory powder of Imogene's foundation clinging to the soft, downy hairs on the sides of her cheeks. What must she see in my face when she looks this close? I'm so sorry, she said. It was hard to tell whether she meant that she was sorry for the way she'd treated Mira all these years or for telling her that it was all ending. In a rare positive moment, Mira decided to think the best of her and assumed she was sorry for all of it. Mira could feel the warmth radiating off of Imogene's skin. Imogene leaned closer to her face, impossibly close, and kissed her. Then she pulled back, stood, and kicked her body out past the wall into the stillness of the air. It felt to Mira as though Imogene's body hovered there in front of her for an unbearable length of time, so long that she worried something had happened to the gravity. Her nightgown and stray wisps of hair pooled out around her body as though in water. Her skirts hovered up around her shoulders, and Mira saw her pale nakedness, her immaculate, vulnerable flesh. Imogene had her eyes squeezed shut and her mouth open wide enough to swallow the world. Then the moment passed and Imogene dropped like a sickened, ungraceful lump. Mira leaned over to watch her descend, so far down she couldn't see or hear the body's impact when it finally struck the sidewalk. Thank you. That was Marissa Levine reading from her new novel, The World Gives Way. Um, thanks for that. And my immediate thoughts were, when did you start writing this book? Because I felt like I uh, picked up on that 2016 things ending dread a little bit. <laughs> it was definitely a 2016 vibe for sure. I think I started really just constantly cyclically thinking about apocalypses right around 2016. Um, I mostly worked on the novel in uh, my MFA program. So it was written mostly, I'd say in 2017 and 2018. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, where'd you get your MFA? Uh, I went to Stony Brook MFA, which is in Southampton out in New York. Oh, cool. Cool. Did you have yeah. any like, particular mentors there who like kind of helped uh, see this yeah. project through? Yeah, I, I had a couple really, really great ones and I owe a lot to them. Um, the first is uh, Susie Merrill, who wrote the book Shirley, um, which I, it got made into a movie last year. The movie was really trippy, too, and it was great. The, the book is amazing. Um, She's on the faculty there, and uh, she kind of she kind of guided me and mentored me. And uh, she she read many copies of the manuscript over time. And uh, she's got an incredible eye for plot, and she likes to kind of piece the book the plots of books together, almost like architecture on a house or maybe like a jigsaw puzzle. She really likes to she she likes to play around with that stuff. And so she was incredibly useful. I you know I was calling her when um when the book was going to auction because i didn't know what the hell i was doing and <laughs> and uh everything in between and she was absolutely wonderful and very giving of her time and then also um stony brook actually has this astonishing faculty um it's kind of like this hidden gem but uh my thesis advisor was paul harding who oh, uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> who won the Pulitzer Prize for Tinkers and is generally one of the most incredible writers I've ever met uh, and has a completely opposite writing style to mine, you know, cause he's one of those guys, it's just sort of like, I will create a book about a man in a room 
thinking about his dying father and it will be the most incredible thing and there will be no plot whatsoever, but it's just gonna, you know, completely slay you and destroy your soul. Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, I'm like all plot all the time and I love that stuff, but he's, uh, he's also really generous uh, with his time and, and also like has that really wonderful belief that like, any type of book can be a great art form. So like, even though my book features a spaceship, he wasn't weird about it. He was like, just really, really lovely. And he was great because I, I'm really into all the plot mechanics and the characters, you know, arcs and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and he was the one that sat me down and was like, okay, but let's talk about your sentences and would like break it down word by word and make sure that the writing was as good as it possibly could be. Um, so I owe a huge debt of gratitude to him as well. Uh, the, uh, Susie and Paul were just insanely helpful and I'll love them forever for it. I'm always curious when I hear people talking about um, working on a novel in an MFA program, because I think that it can be tricky with workshops. Like the workshop is really sort of catered to <laughs> short stories. And then yeah. when you present, you know, a chapter of a novel and it's chapter 13 and half the workshop hasn't read one through 12, um, it can be a little frustrating, I think, of having to like lay the groundwork just before they can even appreciate the chapter. But I, I wonder how that experience was for you. Yeah, workshops are treacherous are treacherous things like I because I actually like I, I really enjoy workshops and I find them super useful. Um, but uh, you're right, for novels, they don't always work. Uh, Stony Brook had a couple classes. In fact, the ones that I took that I found the most helpful were taught by Susie Merrill and Paul Harding. Um, and one was called Beginning the Novel and the other was Your Entire Novel, Let's Do This. <laughs> it was like, I can't remember exactly the name of the class, but those were intensive workshops where people were reading like 150, 200 pages at a time, and then like giving you much more comprehensive notes uh, rather than short story style notes where they're like, I'm not so sure about this word in this sentence, like where it's like, that's great. I have like 300 more pages. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but even with that, I also like the, the advice that I like to always give people whenever I've had like, whenever I've taught workshops myself or, um, or, you know, had students or just talked with fellow writers is that it's not, you don't have to take everybody's opinions. And in fact, it's a really good idea to not do that. <laughs> uh, some of the, some of the comments that I got when I first started workshopping this were just like all over the place uh, and, and all very well intentioned, but just all over the place. Um, but I, I do think that if you can get a handle on your own style and what you want to do enough like have have a as good a sense of an identity as you can going in and then you'll i in my experience you'll find like one or two people in that workshop that you that are kind of picking up what you're laying down and are understanding the novel on its own merits and as it's supposed to be and listen to the stuff that they have to say <laughs> um and also like, I've definitely had the thing where like, I, I had an experience when I was first workshopping this book, uh, where a bunch of people, the book itself is essentially about an apocalypse, if that uh, bit was not clear from the, in, from the intro reading. Um, and it's a certain mood of an apocalypse. It's much more Station Eleven or Melancholia rather than um, something like, say, Armageddon. Um, and my initial uh, 
my initial workshops that I did of, you know, just say like the first 50 pages, I had basically everybody giving me notes, treating it as though it was going to be some sort of breakneck thriller Armageddon style thing. And so they're like, so, I mean, are there going to be like this huge fight and then they're going to race to get the piece and like, you know, throw the nuke at the something, which is going to, you know, then fix everything. Um, and I, and then those notes were all, of course, completely useless to me, but, <laughs> but uh, I, and I, you know, sat there and just like the entire time being like, oh my God, nobody gets it. But then also I realized that their notes were bad, but also partially it was the fact that at that point I hadn't figured out the identity of my novel enough to guide the reader into knowing how they were supposed to regard the book. And so I was actually still able to take the notes and use them. Um, once I figured out that people weren't picking up on what I wanted the novel to be. And that probably was also a fault of mine. So then I went back and reworked and figured out how to get the mood and sort of the audience expectation that I wanted. So even bad notes can actually be good notes, but you do just have to be very careful. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like kind of a tricky thing sometimes to accept the note, but not invite a critic into your head while you're writing, right? Because it's like, <laughs> you don't want to have too many outside voices. You got to you know, rely on instinct and things like that. But with workshop, it sort of can feel natural to bring that whole group to your desk every day. And I don't yeah. think that helps anybody or produces any good work. <laughs> no, no. And also I will say that like, I feel like I w was really lucky in that regard. Cause like, I don't know, I hear horror stories of other MFA programs that maybe it's just that everybody's taking themselves a little too seriously or they're very, you know, or it's more competitive. Stony Brook's sort of like a smaller, uh, it's sort of like a, in my head, it's a best kept secret kind of a thing because it's not something that everybody knows about, but I get to work with Paul Harding and like Amy Hempel, I was doing a short story workshop with Amy Hempel. <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. This is incredible. Um, but. Um, but they kind of espouse people being kind to each other in workshops and and they don't they're not especially cutthroat about it i still got great notes but you know there's kind of that cliche sometimes with workshops that like you show up with your short story and then everybody just finds ways to tell you that you're horrible <laughs> um which as i understand it is actually not that much of a cliche and can be very true depending on what workshop you're in um but i didn't i didn't have that experience i like i I got notes and a lot of them were critical notes, but they were always coming from a fairly kind place. And that always helps as well. And I don't know, maybe before I was doing this, I was doing theater and you get a really thick skin doing that. And maybe that just helps, I don't know. Uh, I, I had a workshop instructor once who really kind of laid the foundation for everyone being kind by saying, I know that I can be the meanest person in the room. So if you want to be mean, then I will be mean to you, which was like, <laughs> well, basically no one was going to take shots because you didn't want an instructor coming for your neck after that. Oh uh, my God, that's beautiful. Really I, I, I don't want to say the name in case he doesn't want that story going around, but it really worked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like that was like our first day orientation was a bunch of teachers being like, don't be an asshole. Like mm -hmm. there's ways, cause there's like, there's totally ways to still uh, provide criticism and you should, cause like it's equally terrible to get a workshop where you submit something and then everybody's just like, no, I like really liked it. And it was really great. And I have no notes and I don't actually have anything insightful about the characters to tell you or anything. I just, it was great. I really loved it. Keep up the good work. And it's like, that's, that's useless to me. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you can find that happy meeting <laughs> where you can like, 
give constructive criticism, but just like not simultaneously tell somebody that they're horrible. Why have you ever written a word? You know, like all, all of that nonsense. It's like super unnecessary and not helpful to anyone, you know. Yeah. Uh, you do hear horror stories. Mostly I feel like the, the bad versions of workshops that I have had haven't been anything where somebody like tried to tear me to shreds. It's just people that like flat out didn't understand what I was doing or those workshops where like, this is not an exact thing, but like where you do a workshop and somebody like comes in, it's like, oh, I thought for sure that your main character was dead and it was a ghost. Is that's not what, what that was? Oh, well, I guess I've scrapped everything I say. <laughs> like stuff like that, where they just like completely are off base. <laughs> And you're in the chair of silence and you're just like, no. Yeah, and you're just sort of sitting there with your lips zipped being something. like, this is all, this is not, this is all useless. Yeah. Um, um, going back to what you said about, um, you know, like Paul uh, being like very much a sentence focused writer and you kind of loving plot. I'm curious with this book, did you have like character or plot in mind like that was your launching off point, like the actual situation or was there like a certain image that you started with? Um, yeah, the, a little bit of all of that. <laughs> um, I am very much a plot person. And so as I was initially writing it, I definitely like to outline. Um, but then I'm also, I don't like to be one of those people that's so rigid about outlines that I'm trying to force the book into what I want it to be. Um, and so I'll regularly chuck out whatever outline I had and kind of start from scratch when I figure out that halfway through my character is, doesn't want to do this at all, you know? And so I'll, I'll, I'll be pretty flexible. Um, I did have a few starting ideas, it just sort of images really in my head that started to kind of coalesce uh, as, as this kind of came together. Um, the book has some really fantastical images in it. Basically, uh, it's about these people on a generation ship, but the ship itself inside looks very similar to just the natural world that we live in now. It was designed that way since everybody was going to be on it for like 200 years. It was designed to basically just look like a bunch of cities and natural landscapes, and it's, it's roughly the size of Switzerland. And so I had a lot of images kind of floating through my head at the very start even before I think I decided that I wanted to put it on a generation ship, just these, this idea of a world that's mostly like ours, but a little left of center and a little bit more designed. Um, there's, a, there's a point in the book where the characters visit a town up in the mountains and the mountains are partially made of stained glass because uh, the, the, um, the town itself uh, is sort of a religious mecca of a place. Um, and then I also, I weirdly uh, get a decent number of ideas from dreams that I've had. Uh, I think generally it's a bad idea to try and fashion a book out of things that you see in dreams because dream logic never makes sense. And that's why everybody starts to glaze over and look bored whenever you tell people <laughs> what you were dreaming the night before. But um, I do end up finding a lot of images and things that uh, have come out of dreams um, that ends up really useful. And like years ago, before I even really knew exactly how I wanted it to fit into anything, I had this dream of two people sitting on the sky amongst the stars and they were upside down looking down at the world below and the sky, instead of being an actual sky, was just a giant metal tin can with holes punched into it and that was the stars. Um, and then they were just sitting up there staring down at the world. And I remember waking up and thinking that that was a really beautiful image and not knowing what to do with it, but just kind of keeping it in my head for a long time. And then realizing when I started to kind of put this together that that's, uh, 
and that that was going to be a very significant point in the book uh, that uh, these characters would have the ability to do that because uh, the world isn't really a world, it's just a big old tin can in space. <laughs> I like that. Um, have you always been interested in sci-fi? Has that always been like the direction you saw your writing going toward? No, oddly enough. I, I, I think... I think I always knew that I was probably going to end up doing genre writing. And I have a feeling, hopefully, you know, if, if all of you people are nice enough to buy my book and I can keep writing things, um, I, I probably would like to jump around within genres a little bit. But I also, I do feel like most of my writing tends to take a genre-y turn. Um, so I read literally just a little bit of everything. I, I'm, I love horror books. I love experimental stream of consciousness, Virginia Woolf style stuff. I love Paul Harding, but I also love Douglas Adams. I love sci-fi, I love fantasy, I love comics, I love memoir, I love everything, I, I read it all. And um, I generally think that that's the better way to do things because then you do end up with, you know, you are, you write what you read and then hopefully, you know, if you read a lot of different things, then you have more available to you to make your writing some quite unique hodgepodge of all of it. Um, so I'm not even sure when I started writing this that I thought it was sci-fi and then I realized like, oh, of course it's sci-fi. I put a spaceship in the book. <laughs> um, but uh, the book that I'm working on next, so far it's turning out to be more of a haunted house book. So it's, it's not quite sci-fi at all, but it definitely kind of still fits within uh, fun, weird, genre-y things. <laughs> so. Yeah. Were there any books in particular that you feel like are sort of like the grandparents of your book, like ones that you were really drawing from or felt like moved by and sort of pushed your book along? Yeah, um, there, there are definitely a few. Uh, for one thing, I spent a lot of time because, you know, they, you get that advice in a lot of like in a lot of workshops, a lot of programs, a lot of, you know, blogs where people are giving advice to writers where they'll say, you know, write the kind of book that you've always wanted to read. And um, one of the books that uh, came out a few years ago now that um, when I read it, I was like, I could read this book and just this book for forever. And this was great, uh, was Station Eleven mm. um, by Emily St. John Mandel. Um, that book was just like this perfect combination for me of literature, like literary kind of style conventions, lots of human connection, but also it's like, a post-apocalyptic book and it's about a Shakespeare troupe, you know, like it's like all of these things at once and it fits together so beautifully. Um, and I immediately was like, I want to write a book like this. And so a lot of the world gives way is definitely at least at its core inspired by that book. Um, I don't think I'm alone in that. I feel like there's a lot of other books that have kind of popped up in, in the years after that book that are doing the same thing. We all owe a great debt of gratitude. Um, I also, I'm a huge fan of Calvino, uh, yeah. and, uh, and so I was reading a lot. I've, I've been obsessed with, uh, Co Cosmic Comics and Invisible Cities for quite a long time now. Um, and so short stories like Distance of the Moon, where, you know, you, the, the surreal and beautiful, like wondrous nature of some folks just paddling out in a rowboat, sticking a ladder out and jump and being able to jump onto the moon uh, was just like one of the most stunningly, stunningly beautiful things I'd ever read. And then Invisible Cities 
is like really, really in the DNA of this book, especially because um, I have these interstitial chapters in the book that I basically put in there as a way to um, sneakily put in some world building without me having to throw in like really shoehorn expository dialogue. Um, but I wanted to make them beautiful and useful in ways besides just exposition. And so I started, re I, I was on a plane rereading Invisible Cities as I just do sometimes. And um, it was like a light bulb going off in my head. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is how I can do this. If like, you know, cause Calvino, for those that haven't read Invisible Cities, does these like crazy strange vignettes where it's Marco Polo talking to Kublai Khan. And he's just talking about all of these cities that he's supposedly visited, but it's becoming increasingly clear that maybe these cities are just in his head. Maybe these cities are just different modes of existence. Maybe it's memory. It's like all of this crazy, amazing philosophical stuff. And every time he describes a city, he's describing a city, but like by the end of the vignette, he's also describing the human condition and the, you know, the life of the mind and all sorts of other weird philosophical twisty things. And so I was basically, I, I aped that a little bit and I did these interstitial chapters where I described different cities within this Switzerland sized spaceship. And um, within that, I also was able to kind of get a little bit more poetic and weird and talk about, uh, you know, human beings relationship to death and uh, other fun topics of conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I was surprised um, in your reading to hear New London referred to as a beautiful place because I'm from Rhode Island and never say anything good about Connecticut ever. <laughs> I, I actually, I, um, I take the New London ferry quite a bit and I, it's, it's a perfectly fine town. Um, I will say nothing about New Londoners because, uh, you know, like their ferry is very, very useful to me. And I've, I've dined at many fine establishments looking over the water, but it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's a town. It's fine. Um, I'm not from Rhode Island. So <laughs> I don't get to have any real opinions on Connecticut or New England in general. I just sort of like, I've lived in New York for the past 15 years now, but I originally came from the Pacific Northwest. So anytime anybody has opinions about different parts of New England, I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna step yeah, far, but, far yeah. away. <laughs> it's not the reason anyway, so yeah, best to stay away. Um, I saw somewhere that you used to work at Book Court, Book Court in Brooklyn. Yeah, yes, I did. Um, I, I miss it. <laughs> yeah. Were you there when it closed? I was working at uh, Stories Bookshop in Park Slope when they closed. So I was also a Brooklyn bookseller at the same time. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was working there when they closed. By the time that they closed, I was working there mostly part time because I'd actually gotten a job working at an art gallery in um, in Chelsea. But like, and even though that was a full time job, I was sort of like, no, but I'm still working here, though. Yeah. <laughs> and I would do just like part time shifts here and there. Um, and actually, as I'm like, as I'm sitting here, like just past my computer screen, I can see a book court bookcase standing against my wall because they gave the bookcases to the employees when when they closed down the store. Um, but uh, yeah, I miss that place. And but honestly, honestly, I was just like so happy to be a part of that because I feel like its own it's its own little bit of Brooklyn history and literary history. And also, I I met people there that really have you know speaking of like people that have done me too many kindnesses and didn't need to but still did and were really wonderful about it um 
I was working there around the same time that Emma Straub was working there. And of course now Emma has gone on to open up Books Are Magic, just a few blocks away from where Book Court was, which basically made everybody in the neighborhood breathe this huge sigh of relief because we're like, oh, thank God, there's a bookstore still. <laughs> um, it, it, it would have been, been like, it was really sad just regardless, but the fact that she then went to open up a really beautiful bookstore not too far away, like made things much nicer. And um, she, and she helped me, she's like sent letters when I wanted to go to an MFA program and she uh, like encouraged me and helped me out when the book was coming through and she let me read at her bookstore, which was nice. <laughs> um, and generally speaking, she is lovely and that bookstore is lovely. And I'm, if there wasn't going to be a book court anymore, I'm glad that that one's there, but, uh, but yeah. Book Court was wonderful and it was a really great place for readings because it had that gigantic big back room with this big like greenhouse skylight window and it was it was gorgeous. Yeah, Books Are Magic kind of has like that similar space now where it's like cavernous in there a little bit. Not quite yeah, there, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. There's that like back area you have to like descend a set of stairs and suddenly the the ceilings are vaulted and it's and there's bigger windows and it's really pretty. Yeah, um they've done a nice job with that. I liked stories though too. Uh, I I lived I mainly lived in Carroll Gardens when I was when I was around there, so I didn't get over to stories as much, but that was a that's a great bookstore. Yeah, I actually was um there last summer. They went out of business during COVID, so I I'd left and moved back to Rhode Island, but um went back to help them close down, which was very sad, but um, you know, I was happy to be there for the last days of it. And actually when we were packing up what was last of the inventory, I was running down to Books or Magic for their, you know, empty book boxes so that we could, mm -hmm. open. And, you know, the, the bookseller community is great. People are so supportive. Um, you know, it's, I, I'm glad to be in it in Los Angeles and you're a bookseller in the Hamptons now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm actually about to close up shop for a little bit and then, uh, and, uh, well, they're not closing up shop. I don't own the shop, but, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm about to head out for a while. Uh, and so I'll, I'll be leaving the bookstore at the end of July, but, um, yeah, I work at Southampton books and Sag Harbor books. Um, and they're also really lovely people. And, just in keeping with the standard <laughs> if, uh, that I feel like I always encounter at independent bookstores, they've been super supportive of my writing. They've been really kind about uh, like supporting the book and publicizing the book once it came out. Um, the owner of the bookstore is a big sci-fi fan. And so he read, he was one of the first to read the galleys and he's like, he's sort of gruff in his opinions about things. So I, I also knew it to be true that if he didn't like the book, there was no way that he'd be able to lie to me. Mm -hmm. And so when he told me that he liked it, I was like, oh God, because I, I could trust that he meant it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was this, it was this huge sigh of relief uh, that Greg of Southampton Books liked my book because he was such a huge sci-fi fan that I like. I knew that if it didn't pass muster with Greg, then it probably wasn't going to pass muster with many other people. Um, That's great. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, do you have a, a staff pick at your bookshop that you want to plug real quick? I, we're plugging your book plenty here. You got one that you <laughs> shout out, another one you want to shout out? Sure. I mean, I have so many opinions. Uh, like, and also the the bookstores, the dual bookstores of Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, are riddled with shelf talkers. That's just all we do when when the store is slow. Is we just sit there and take out little note cards and tape them to bookmarks and shove them in those. So and shove them in the bookshelves. So like, we have opinions. I swear to God, on like fifty percent of the books in the store. Um, I'd say 
some of my big favorites besides Invisible Cities and Station Eleven, which definitely have shelf talkers by me on them, um, is uh, I'm a pretty huge fan of Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Um, I was really, really sad when he died last year. Uh, that book is a book that I recommend to just about everyone because I haven't met a person that doesn't like it. Because it, it, again, it kind of does that thing where it's like, almost fantastical but it's not and it's kind of a dickens story but it's not and it's historical but it's also doing a bunch of other stuff as well and it's like this love letter to books and usually all i have to tell somebody is this book features a secret underground library in barcelona and they'll and they'll, they're just like yeah sold i'll take it um i also went absolutely crazy for the book piranesi when that came out recently and that book is like just so full of wonder and beautiful and strange and i don't know how Susanna clark managed to pack so much beauty and story into such a small book but she did um and then also uh what was the other one that i was thinking about um in a completely different vein uh because it's not fantastical at all but um i recently read brandon taylor's short story collection filthy animals yep. And that completely knocked my socks off. And I've never read characters the way that he writes characters, but it's like, it's very realistic fiction, but it has prose that will absolutely just like suck your soul out of your body. It's so good. And the characters are so real and so visceral. And the way he writes is so physical and just again, visceral that like, I feel like whenever I read anything he's written, I'm like aware of my own skin as yeah. I'm, <laughs> as I'm reading. So that book absolutely killed me as well. But yeah. Three great recommendations. Thank you for those and for taking the time, Marissa. Today's guest was Marissa Levine, and she was discussing her first novel, The World Gives Way. You can order your copy of the book or any of the others mentioned on today's podcast at skylightbooks.com or swing by and find them at the store. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thanks, Marissa, for stopping by. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.